Hello, hello. Welcome. Look at you all just saying hi to each other, being nice. My name is Jeff. Uh, I'm the executive director of Phoenix One. We attend this local church, and then every once in a while I get the opportunity to teach, so I am so glad to be here and really, really excited um, about this series we're in, Credo. And uh, so we're gonna, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. It's the oldest creed. It's about 1,800 years old. And so it is, one, it is the, uh, a creed that unified the local church and, and still does today. So we're going to read it together uh, as a community. It's, it's up here on the screen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. And everybody said, I would imagine as you were going through that, you're like, wait, hold on, what? What did we just say? Right? There's a few things in there that maybe caused you pause. Well, that's why uh, we're going through this series. Uh, you're going like, holy Catholic church. Wait, no, we're not talking about Rome. Uh, we're talking, the, the word Catholic literally means universal. We are talking about the universal church, the body of Christ uh, coming together, uh, descended into hell. You're like, what? Well, there's passages. Let's talk about that. So this series is going, if this is a foundational creed, that unified the local church and has continued to do that, then we should talk about that. Because we're in days where we're trying to find out who's on first. And what this creed does and what the creeds have done historically is said, these are the essentials of the faith. This is why we say, we're different. We're different. And this is the thing that, that affirms why we're different. It's kind of like the Constitution you know, the Constitution said, we the people, right? This is us going, us as believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians, this is what we affirm to. And actually, it's a summary of the whole Bible. And it, it kind of boils it down into what we call the essentials. Now, uh, there's other things called non-essentials. And what you find is in the 16th century, we only had two churches. And in the, you had Orthodox and Catholic Church. And then in the 16th century, we gave people the Bibles, and they took all the non-essentials, and we divided over it. There are over 43,000 different denominations. Because we divided over the non-essentials. But we affirm the essentials. We're on the same team. We see things differently. But as far as this is concerned, there's no argument. This is who we are. In fact, Alex said last week that these are boundary markers. I really like that language. That these are boundary markers. These are what the thing, this is, these are the things that say this is who we are and this is how we're different than other world religions or anyone else. And, and one of the other things that I thought Alec did so well last week as we move into today, is that he, he said, listen, as believers, we affirm that the Bible is authoritative. It's inspired by God. And so if that's the truth, and we're affirming that that's true, and I hope we are this morning, I believe that, 
then I, I don't feel like I need to philosophically argue God. Because that's what we're going to talk about today. I don't, I don't know if I need to philosophically argue God. I know there's a lot of really smart people who do that, and I'm grateful for them. I just want to affirm what the Bible says about God. So if we're saying that we believe the Bible is, is authoritative and inspired by God, then why don't we just go ahead and talk about what he says about himself? Is that okay? Can we do that this morning? Good. So, which is great because you get into Genesis 1, right off the bat, we're going to find out about this God. Genesis 1, 1 says this, in the beginning, what? God. Right off the gate. No questions. In the beginning, God. Let's start with God. Let's start there. And so let's learn a little bit about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, and by the way, they didn't really have a Hebrew word for like universe. So earth is like the universe. The universe was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the world. God is the creator of heaven and earth. There, there is not a thing of chance or choice. You don't, there's no chance. Like he's just saying, I have always existed. That's who I am. And the scriptures are telling us this is who he is. In darkness, in nothingness, he wasn't alone. He existed before that. And your mind's like, yes, because that's the transcendent nature of God. He is the uncreated creator. And everything was made through intelligent design, according to what Genesis lets us know. And when he designs something, he says what? It's what? It's good. Why is it good? Because God is good. Goodness exists because God exists. So you can imagine that anything he creates, he deems as what? Good. He creates everything and he goes, it's good because I'm a good God. And what we find really interesting within creation and all the universe is this fine-tuning. That everything's put together perfectly. And if manipulated, everything folds in on itself. But because of this intelligent, uncreated creator who designed it all, it works and runs efficiently in the way it's supposed to be. Why? Because it's who he is. It flows out of his nature. It didn't stress him out. How many of you are, are, are big fans of like space? You're like f- space geeks. All right, let me just have some fun for a sec, okay? So I, I love space. I like sitting out on my front porch and I love looking at the stars. They just point to the transcendence of God. Like for instance, a typical galaxy, uh, it contains b- a billion individual stars. The Milky Way, our particular uh, galaxy, contains about 200 billion stars. And our galaxy is shaped like a a spiral, right? And the sun is on one little arm of that spiral. If that, it would take that spiral 250 million years to go around. Isn't that fascinating? And we're just one galaxy. They believe there's about 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe. The close one, the average distance between one galaxy is about 20 million trillion miles. Our closest galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy. It is 12 million trillion miles away. Does that blow your mind? It should, because you're not God. Like that should just like 
Un- that's why I, I, get a, I, I get a kick when they launch these telescopes out and they go, yay, look what we did. And it's only confirming we know nothing, right? Like, it's just like taking a picture and going, we know nothing, but let's take some guesses. Anybody want to guess? Let's guess, right? But I love it. And I think it pleases them that we're pursuing and trying to figure it out, but it just continues to confirm we know nothing. We know nothing. But it's, we're like little children just trying to figure it out and it gets us so excited and I love it. And I think it pleases them. Um, but here's the interesting thing. On a macro level, I have spent a lot of time going, like, oh my gosh, it's so big. It's so vast. It's so transcendent. God is above it all. He's so transcendent. But Descartes helped me with something. And Descartes has this idea that as vast as the universe is on a macro scale, it's just as vast on a micro scale and humanity sits in the middle. Like, check this out. Every single human being has about 140 trillion synapses that fire right now. They keep you alive. How many of you woke up this morning and you were really excited that you woke up, right? You're like, this is awesome. I, waking up is cool, right? How many of you willed your heart to fire up? How many of you willed your lungs to breathe? How many of you willed your eyelids to open, right? Some of you really had to will, like open, right? Go to church, right? No, it just happens. 143 trillion synapses to keep you rolling and going times 80 billion people. And the Lord's in control of it all. (laughs) I, I can't even change the oil on my car. Right? Like we have this like, uh, you know, this filter that we're supposed to change on the refrigerator. It just keeps blinking red going, you moron, like change it. And I'm like, yeah, maybe so. Like I-, I can't even do those things. And here he's holding macro and micro together and, he, and it's not worrying him. And it's running together with perfection because it's who he is. The transcendence of God and what he is inviting us into the mystery of all that he is. The transcendence and the greatness of what he is as creator God. And here's what I find about human beings, myself included. We struggle with this. Struggle with the vastness of this. Because what we really want, what we desperately want is a palatable, domesticated God. We want to put him in a little box so it brings us lots of comfort. When people ask us about him. Or it brings us lots of comfort to ourselves. We want to logically understand everything. We want a palpable, predictable, domesticated God. It's what we really want. It's what what we're hoping for a lot of us. And it's why it's brought us so much pain and, and hurt and confusion. Because it keeps coming into conflict with who he actually is. Like, you know, people are like, well, you know... I think God really like needs me. And I just want you to know, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need, he loves you. He doesn't need you. He's self-sufficient. But some of us just feel like he, well, he needs, he needs my worship. He doesn't need your worship. You worship is for you. Glorifies him. It's to help you grow and help you understand that you are magnifying the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But he's not like, worship me more, worship me more. I don't know what I'll do if they don't worship me. He doesn't have that. He's self-sufficient. God needs to make me happy. Like, if God really loves me, he'll make you happy. He doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. He's God. I am a creation. A creation he loves deeply and desperately. But God owes me nothing. He's not some mafia member. 
He's not like a union and there's dues. He's God. Uh, he's unbelievably unpredictable, like so unpredictable. He's immutable. In fact, what I would encourage you is to do this. You probably need to change. He doesn't. In fact, he doesn't change. It's not in his nature to change. He's immutable. What does need to change is you and I. We need to submit our lives to him, not a vice versa, but that's what so much of our culture is inviting you in. And many of us is caught into this trap. He never shows up. I always feel like he's just not near. No, 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 he's omnipresent. Omnipresent, which means this. The truth about who he is is that he's near to you. That's truth. He's near to you. Are you near to him? Do you sense his presence that's closer to you than your own heartbeat right now? I don't know if God's powerful, all the stuff that's going on. Does he see what's going on around the world? He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. All-powerful is who he is. And I find it so interesting that, that humans decide what power of the power of God looks like and doesn't look like. Like we can kind of figure out that problem. You know, it's so interesting for me. Jesus is on the cross, and they're all mocking him. Look at this powerless man. Look at him. Oh, we thought he was the Messiah. If you are so strong and you are powerful, then come down off the cross. And they don't realize that power just decided to lay his life down. And that's why Jesus says to the people, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand me. They don't understand my power. They don't understand my sovereign plan. They don't understand me. That I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that I am working all things together for good to those who love me. And I have plans. But plans, we're trying to go like, wait, but my plans. My, what about God's plans? What about his ways for his glory? And where a lot of us are really struggling with the nature of God. He just seems to be asleep. He seems to be asleep. No, he's not asleep. He's sovereign over all. Oh, he needs to accommodate my truth. Like, it's my truth. No, 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 no. He's omniscient. Truth exists because God exists. Your truth will die with you. It just will. Your truth will die with you. But his truth has always existed because it's who he is. And I don't know about you, but I want to submit my life to that truth, not my own truth. And by the way, how's that working out for us? How's that working out for us? I want to submit my life to his truth because he is truth. Truth exists because God exists. It's his nature. He is the moral standard. You know, Moses, God, God meets Moses in a burning bush. You remember this in Exodus 3? He, he meets Moses in, in a burning bush. And he says, I want my people to go. Well, how kind that the, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all things comes to us, comes to Moses and wants to deliver these people out of captivity. He comes to them. And then and in verse 13, as he's kind of talking to Moses about this, Moses has some kickback. He says that Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It's interesting because the, the Israelites are living in a polytheistic world. They're living in a polytheistic world. Many gods. And he, he's like, who do, I, who do I tell them? Like I was on a train once in India, my very first time I was on a train. And I was reading this book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. 
was reading this book. Great book, by the way. I uh, reading this book, and this Hindu guy sits next to me. He sits next to me, and we start talking. He goes, oh, you know about God. And I was like, yes, sir, I'm learning. And, uh, and he goes, oh, we have lots of gods. I was like, tell me about that. In India, they have 330 million gods. Everything's a god. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'll just... He was kind of like, your God's cool, and so are these gods. And I was like, no, no, no. I believe in a monotheistic God. That's what I believe in. One God, uncreated creator, above it all. And that's where we're different. And this is what God, like Moses is going, who, who will I tell them? And, and God's response is, I just want you to hear, it's just so kind. God says to Moses, I am who I am, he said. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. I am self-existent. I have nothing to prove, but I'm coming near. That is who I am. Tell them that the I am that existed from the very beginning of creation for all of time is the same I am that's meeting you in your despair, meeting you in your captivity, and will deliver you for his good name, for his glory. Tell them that I am sent you. A.W. Tozer has this quote, I love it so much. He says, what comes, this is so important, by the way. What comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. I had this friend who, yeah, any of you have friends that are like, like manly like super manly. Like they do manly stuff. Like you call them. If, you, if there's an emergency, you call them. Anybody? Yeah. Okay. So I got a buddy. His name's Corey. And Corey's like manly. This dude, like he hunts with a bow and then he hunts with a gun and that kind of deal. But then he went on a hunt in Maui. This is a real story with a, a hog hunt with a knife. Like who does that? Right? Like, but he does. He, he went on a hunt and he killed a pig with a knife, like a savage, like, like a caveman. And so it's like, that's the kind of guy he is. He's my next door neighbor in California. And so, and a good buddy of mine. And so another friend of ours called him because there was a rattlesnake in his garage, right? Didn't call me. I think probably because I wear skinny jeans. But anyway, um, uh, didn't call me. But anyway, so he calls Corey and Corey goes over like Superman and, and grabs the snake and he puts it in a bucket. Instead of releasing it out in the wild, he brings it back home so all the kids can kind of see it, right? So he brings it back into our house and the kids are like, it was awesome. It was like the 80s. You know, in the 80s, I caught all kinds of stuff like lizards and snakes. I caught so much stuff. It was like, get off your phones and play with some snakes. Anyway, so the kids are playing with the rattlesnake and it's snapping at them and, you know, rattling and all that kind of stuff. Awesome, right? I, I couldn't have been happier. So finally, he's like, okay, it's time to, to, to put this snake down. So he, he cuts off the head and he, and he puts the, the tail over here and he grabs the head and it bites him. I find it so interesting that we're so cavalier about the way we approach God. Just so cavalier. Like, oh, I got this figured out. Oh, I know who he is. God is holy. God is holy. He is almighty. This is what the creeds are telling. He is almighty. He is holy. Isaiah 6. If you remember in Isaiah, Isaiah comes and has a vision of the Lord. And it says this in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the, the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Think of a cocoon that's flying around. Think of the honor that they are they're, they're covering their eyes. They're covering their feet. It's a cocoon of wings flying around to serve the Lord. So humbled. And what is it that happens? And what do they call to one another? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, what is his response? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why? Why is this Isaiah's response? Because he knows who he is, and he knows who the Lord is. The Lord is holy. When they're saying this, they're going, holy is God the Father. Holy is God the Son. Holy is God the Spirit. Holy, holy, holy are they. Isaiah's response is, I am undone. Woe is me. Spurgeon says this. I love this. God will never do anything with us till he has first of all undone us. Be undone by the holiness of God. He is holy other. I'm going to read a quote, and it's heavy, and I affirm it. It's by R.C. Sproul, and he says this. If you don't delight in the fact that your father is holy, 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 then you are spiritually dead. You may be in a church, you may go to a Christian school, but if there is a no delight in your soul for the holiness of God, you don't know God. You don't love God. You're out of touch with God. You're asleep to his character. That I know that feels weighty, and I want you to know it should feel that way. Because what's happened is we've tried to create a domesticated version of God that's palatable for people. Instead of dealing with what scripture says about him. And I want you to know, like, I'm sorry. I know there's been years in my pastoral ministry that I've been fearful to bring this truth to the church and brought a very domesticated version of God. This is who God is. He is holy, holy, holy. And I don't know about you, but I want to worship a holy, holy, holy God. I want to worship a God that is above all, knows all, and is all. That deserves my worship. The holiness of God is both terrifying. It's terrifying, and it's so beautiful. But until we can understand both aspects of his nature, we will never really know him. We will keep trying to domesticate him. In fact, like Tozer was saying early, who do you say God is? Really, who do you say God is? 
Because many people just see him as this old man in a rocking chair. Like he's just in some celestial rocking chair. He created everything, this agnostic vision of God that he's just kind of created everything, kind of left it alone, and he's just up there just chilling. Many of you, I grew up this way, believe he's like an angry moral monger. And he's just constantly pointing his finger in your chest and he's going, shame on you. Shame on you. Hope you like hell. You better figure out your at. You know what I'm saying? Many of us think of him that way. Dalton, who's on staff here at the church, he's a zillennial. He helped me with this one. That some of us see him as like a desperate boyfriend. I thought that was so great. Like a desperate, like, I just miss you so much, baby. Will you come back to me? Do you need some goodies? What do you need? Do you need some goodies? you need some blessings? And maybe I'll give you blessings and you'll return back to me, please, please. No. Some of you really believe that God's, uh, no. He's like a puppy. He's like, oh, I just love God. He's the best. Just, he's the best. He's like a genie in the bottle. We praise him when he answers our prayers and then we curse him when he doesn't seem to abide by our rules in our way. We're so happy when everything goes the way we want it to go and then when it doesn't go the way we want it to do, we shake our fists to the heaven and we curse him. Many of you here don't believe God exists. Some of you do. And if you're here, if you're here and you don't believe God exists, I'm so glad you're here. Please hear me. I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where you can be here and learn and grow. We're all trying to learn and grow here. And talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. We want to talk to you. We want to work through this together. But I don't know about you, but I, I would love for us to see him as a holy, holy, holy of God because that's what the scriptures have affirmed. And that's what people have given their life for in belief that he is both terrifying and beautiful and lovely and kind. And when we finally come to understand who he is, it affects all that we do and how we live. When we truly understand what the scriptures are saying to us and and we submit to that and live into that, it affects all that you do and all that you are. And I'm imagining you, probably like me, like this feels heavy, like woof. And here's what I want you to know. Jesus knew that. Jesus comes into a Jewish context the first century, and he, and he, he comes into that, and, and they have these 613 laws. They have these things that they're all trying to abide by. If you remember, he goes, come, all of you who are weary, laden, heavy and leery laden, I'll give you a rest for your soul. It's like Jesus comes into that environment knowing they feel the, the vastness of who God is. And he tells a story because he knows they feel that way. And maybe you feel that way right now. He tells a story, and it's the greatest story. They say it's the greatest story Jesus ever told. And he tells this story, and the story's about two sons and a father. Because he wants them to understand who God the Father is. He also wants them to know who they are. So he starts telling the story. He talks about this son. And this son, he sees all that his dad has, and he realizes that he needs his inheritance, and he says, where's mine? I want my wealth. Give it to me. Essentially saying to his father, dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I want to do it my way, my truth. And you've been holding me down 
all these years. Just give me what's mine. Which, as the people were listening to the story, would have been like, stone him. Which, they would have had a stoning party at that point. So what Jesus did next, and he's explaining about what the Father, who the Father is to the people, blows their mind. The Father does what? He allows him to go away and take the wealth and squander it. The people are like mind blown. They can't believe that the Father would do that. Why would you do that? And we see the Son do what all of us know and feel, right? We see that the son squanders, trying to find out his truth. You know what I mean? Trying to figure out his way because he's tired of doing it the way that it's always been done or the way he's been asked to submit and he won't. He squanders everything and where does he find himself? Where so many of us find ourselves at times lost. What happened? But what does he do in the midst of that? He remembers. And what does he remember? He remembers who his father is. My father's a good man. He cares for so many people. He even cares for, at the time, those who are taking care of the property. He treats them, and he's kind, and he's gentle. Maybe he would take me back. And so he conjures up a plan. We do this too, don't we? Conjures up a plan. Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Maybe you'll take me back as a slave. Take me back as a slave because I've screwed up big time. So I've got this prayer that I'm going to give my father and everything's going to be okay. So he starts walking back. The father, God the father, waits. Waits in anticipation for the son to return home. Why? Because he's good. Loves his kids. The son returns. You can almost hear him repeating over and over, Father, forgive them. I've sinned against heaven and earth, please. And he comes before the father and he, what happens when the father sees the son? Anybody know? What happens? He runs to him. Jesus is saying, yes, he is the uncreated creator. That's true of who he is. Yes, he is holy, 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 but he runs he came near to us. John 1 says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Eugene Peterson in verse 14 says this, the word became flesh, incarnated and moved into the neighborhood. God is holy and high and lifted up, but he comes near, he comes near to you and to me and he loves us. And he receives us. And what do we try to do? Oh, we try to manipulate through. Oh, I've sinned again. And he just ignores it and receives him home and restores him fully and wholly. That's who God is. He is holy. He is holy. He is the uncreated creator. Truth exists because God exists, but he also comes near as a father. And loves and embraces. And you know the struggle I've had with for most of my life, and maybe you'll struggle with this with me as well. Yeah, he came into the neighborhood for some people, but what about mine? He seemed to move into the neighborhood for a bunch of other people, but what about me? What about me? I grew up in a Christian church my whole life. You know, I've struggled for most of my life with this idea that religion is the opiate of the masses. Maybe I just believe this because I'm supposed to believe it. 
right? That we're just all playing a game and a charade here to deal with the hard things in this world. So God has to exist because otherwise I don't know what I'm going to do. And I've wrestled through that. Some of you wrestled with that? Wrestled with that. My mom left when I was 12. My dad and I haven't had a relationship in 27 years. So you can see how relating to God the Father has been difficult for me. I related to a very authoritarian God, but a God who's near to me and loves me, I struggle with that. When eight years old, my son diagnosed with cancer. (laughs) Wait a second, God, that wasn't a deal. And I wrestled and I almost walked away from my faith because it was too painful. But I experienced God in that hospital room in the pain and the agony. And it drew me in. I've been diagnosed with cancer. My wife's been diagnosed with cancer. And here's what I'm here to tell you. I get it. Psalms 34 says this, he's near to the brokenhearted. In your time of need, he's near. What does God do? He comes near. And it also says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. You're going to have faith in something. I choose to have faith in God. And I've tasted and I've seen that he is good. In the midst of my pain, in the midst of my questioning, in the midst of my running in the way, in the midst of the restoration, he is good. And so if you think I'm trying to like manipulate you or convince you, I don't have to do that work. Because if you just allow yourself to taste and see his goodness, it will be done. And what happens when you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, not just because of circumstance, what do you want to do? Like the woman at the well, you want to run through the street, say, let me tell you about God, about a God who is, yes, the uncreated creator, almighty God, holy, holy, holy. But he came to me and he loves me and he rescued me. And you need that gospel. You need that gospel truth, that word that he gives to you. Good news exists because God exists. He is good news. But here's my encouragement and my challenge is to taste and see. Taste and see that he is good. This is who we are as believers. Any other doctrine, any other philosophy that would come into contradiction with this is to be rejected because we believe that God is God and that we are not. And we submit our lives to the truth, the authoritative truth inspired by the spirit of God that says, this is who he is. And I have tasted for myself and I have seen for myself that he is good. So this is my testimony to you. I'm not arguing philosophically. I'm not even arguing theologically. I'm simply telling you, I've tasted and seen that God is good. And I'm asking you and inviting you to do the same and then to go help a bunch of other people taste and see the goodness, the goodness of this holy, holy, holy God. Father God, I just... Thank you for your patience with me as I do my best to explain my own personal experience and understanding of you. 
explain what you're, I know I've come so short, not even, <laughs> but you just, I feel your, your pleasure, I feel your delight in me as I try. I, I join Paul in going, who can understand the mind of God? Who can comprehend his ways? I cannot, but I'm just saying, the more I've come to know you, the more I don't, I realize I don't know much, but what I do know, I have found and I have tasted and I have seen that you are good and that you love me and you see me and you know me and you're near to me. I pray that over our church. I pray, Spirit of the living God, that you would fill in the gaps that I have, I have for sure missed. That you, they would be, your, your spirit would be humid in their hearts right now. We anticipate you meeting us, teaching us, guiding us, and leading us. And we join the angels in saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We praise you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Amen.